0: Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from... Dante. An inmate at... The Jackson Correctional Institution.
1: All calls, other than properly placed attorney calls, may
0: be monitored and recorded. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, press 2. Thank you for using... CenturyLink. You may start the conversation now. Welcome to the Incarcerated U.S. Podcast. I'm your host, (laughs) Heidi Cottingham. This morning I'm speaking to Mr. Glenn E. Martin. He is the president and founder of an organization called Just Leadership U.S.A., and he's the founder of the Crows Rockets Campaign. Good morning, Mr. Martin. Good
1: morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm
0: good, thank you. I'd like to thank you for, uh, for taking the time to have a discussion with me
1: this morning. I'm glad to have the opportunity, and call me Glenn, please. No problem. Um, so, Glenn, I have some questions. I'd like to ask you to get your perspective
0: on some of the components of mass incarceration in America. But, but before we get to that, let's, uh, let's talk about Just Leadership USA. What motivated you to found it, and what is its mission?
1: Sure. Well, the goal of Just Leadership USA is to cut the number of people under correctional supervision in this country in half by 2030, and we do that by investing in the leadership and the ideas and the vision of people who've actually experienced the criminal justice system As someone who served six years in prison myself, uh, coming out of prison 15 years ago and landing in the middle of the criminal justice reform movement, eventually I realized that there is no movement uh, if it's not led by the people who have been most oppressed by the system. And so while it was great to emerge as one of the leaders in the space, I found that if I wasn't doing my job of investing my privilege to help other leaders emerge, then we'd never get to the point of going from uh, a series of moments to a real movement.
0: People that's closer to the problem, closer to the solution.
1: That's what we say at Just Leadership. We say people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from power and resources. The idea being that if you serve time in the system, then you probably have an analysis of the system and experiential knowledge that can be valuable to people who are trying to reform the system and I find that those ideas and those voices have been marginalized from the discussion as much as we've been marginalized by the system, if you will. And then at the same time, I also recognize that my ability to uh, meet with governors and legislatures around the country and other decision makers um, is rare and that most people who are on the margins don't get a chance to talk to decision makers and so at Just Leadership USA, not only do we invest in the leadership of formerly incarcerated people through our year-long meeting with conviction training, but head we also calls bring... Them
0: other than properly placed attorney calls may be monitored and recorded.
1: Please continue, Glenn. We, yeah, we also try to bring them closer in proximity to people of power and privilege and resources. So, for instance, we've had the head of the Ford Foundation join us at our training to network with our leaders. We've had the Secretary of State. We've had the head of the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We've had a number of key policymakers and foundation folks and other, uh, again, uh, opinion leaders from across the country uh, attend our trainings and network with our leaders. And to date, in less than three years, we've trained 360 leaders in 29 states plus D.C.
0: That's what's up. And it's my understanding uh, that I've got a a leading with conviction event coming up.
1: Uh, pretty soon Uh, tell us a little bit more about that sure so we have a graduation coming up for this year's cohort Uh, there's 36 people in the cohort usually about 50 percent women 50 percent men and these are folks who are uh, changing laws around the country these are folks who are doing organizing Um, as you might know we have a local campaign here to shut down Rikers Island one of the most notorious jails in our country and when we launched the campaign, people gave us a 20% chance of convincing uh, New York City's mayor to shut down Rikers, and they gave us three years in which to try to make that happen, and in less than uh, 12 months, we were able to convince the mayor to do it. Why? Um, because we invested in people who had been most harmed by Rikers as the organizing body that we would uh, engage to push the mayor. And so we knew that so many New Yorkers, literally uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, um, would be motivated to support the campaign, and and that was the right calculation. And so uh, our theory of change about investing in people who have been most harmed by mass incarceration as part of the solution because they have the most interest in the outcome, I think, was the right calculation. And we're going to continue to pursue that model during the life of Just Leadership USA. No doubt,
0: no doubt, no doubt. So it, 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 where is the, uh, when, when is the meeting, the meeting with conviction um, event, and, and where is it?
1: Sure, it's uh, September 16th in New York. It's going to be held at uh, John Jay College. Um, okay. This is a chance for people to get to know our leaders. I mean, some of our leaders, to give you a sense of who they are, uh, most of them are three to five years out from their incarceration. Um, we don't screen people out for type of conviction um, we allow anyone in uh, because we believe in human beings and their ability to do tremendous good and tremendous evil, and everyone has the power to do both and so we're not going to screen people out based on previous convictions. so we've had people who've done five years on probation and we've had people who've done forty years in prison right. and those leaders those leaders now stand alongside governors when they're signing legislation. They work at places like the ACLU, helping to guide their end mass incarceration work. Some of them are running their own organizations at the right. intersection of reentry and, and technology and you name it. So these leaders are showing up in key places around the country, and if people want to get to know these leaders and figure out how to uh, support them and invest in them, they can definitely reach out to us to be a part of the uh, event that's going to be happening in New York City.
0: No doubt. I mean, I'm going to make sure to... uh put
1: all that information
0: along with this uh, along with this podcast. Well, I think it's a great idea, man. Um, uh, uh, You've you got a lot of smart, like, as you know, you got a lot of smart, very talented, very intelligent brothers and sisters in prison in across the country, man. And It's a lot of, it's a, I think, it's an untapped resource. So it's good news to see that you guys are tapping in to that, to that power.
1: Yeah, we, we lock up some of America's best and brightest, and, and we don't tell each other that truth. We tell each other a lie about who we lock up in this country Mm-hmm. and we tell each other a lie about the distinction between victimization and offender, quote-unquote. The truth of the matter is that, you know, black men in particular are the most prevalent victim of violent crime in the United States, and yet their voices have not been heard with respect to how we set public safety policy. And instead, uh Americans, because we have this narrative in our heads about who the offender is, constantly equate black men with being the offender, even when They are the most prevalent victims in the country, and I believe that if we invest in them as victims, uh, that many of the crimes that happen in this country would not happen because uh, we treat black men as undeserving victims. And, you know, we're ready here in New York City, when they become the offender, we're ready to spend a quarter million dollars a year to keep them at Rikers Island. But when they're the victim of crime, because they live in communities that are high crime, high victimization, we don't want to invest in them as victims.
0: Indeed, indeed, indeed. It, it, it's it's so. Tell me this. Um, I, 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 what would you say that you guys need, um, to to to, to realize your goal of cutting it in, yeah. you know, the population in, uh, in half by 2030? What, what do you need? What would you say that just leadership USA needs to be successful?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. I mean, the first one is obvious. I'm running a nonprofit. And non-profits, you have to raise money to get to the finish line. You have to pay staff. You have to have money for engaging in, uh, uh actions and, and rallies and, and so on. And so money is always an issue. And being a, a black man, a formerly incarcerated black man, means that I am struggling my way through philanthropy in a way that's different than others. And that's not a critique of others, but the fact of the matter is that this is America and the very same uh, inequalities that we're trying to address as an organization exist in, in our own space, amongst our own allies, and I think it's important to say that out loud. Um, beyond that, beyond that I would say this, you know, we know how we got here, mandatory minimums, truth and sentencing, three strikes laws, the growth of probation, the growth of uh, parole, the growth of electronic monitoring, the entire expansion of the system. So the first thing I'd say is, You know, we know what the policies are because we've been doing them for about 45 years. And although they rest on top of previous systems of oppression like Jim Crow and slavery and everything else, the fact of the matter is that mass incarceration is relatively young, and so the policy policy issues are, are right in our face and clear. Having said that, as someone who's done policy advocacy for years, who landed at a public interest law firm after prison and did that sort of work, I continue to see the value in it, but I think if we're not also redefining uh, uh, the way we think about people who end up in the system, if we're not moving away from language about prisoners and convicts and inmates and ex-offenders and instead talking about mothers and fathers and children and brothers and right. helping America to understand that this is an American issue, that when, when you have a country where a hundred million people have a criminal record on file, it's no longer some small group of people that did something wrong. It's who we are as a country it's in our DNA. And so the reason we invest in, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead.
1: I was going to say the reason we invest in formerly incarcerated people as leaders is because they bring professional policy skills to the table and advocacy skills, but also because they can rehumanize, uh, the issue all right, right, all right now. The reason we treat people like animals is because we've defined them as animals. The reason we can put a person in a cage for 23 hours a day is because they're not people. They're inmates. They're convicts. They're offenders. They're everything. They're animals. They're wolf packs. All the words and languages, uh, all the language we've used to define people in the criminal justice system allow us to treat people this way. And so I think that it's a combination, to answer your question squarely, it's a combination of policy reform and rehumanizing folks who end up with handcuffs on in this country. Absolutely. And, 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 I, and,
0: what, what, and what do you think is the best way to, to get that message across? Because you're absolutely right. It's, it's perspective. It's down to perspective when it comes to uh, incarcerating, criminalizing people across the country. Um, how, how do, how do, what do you think the best way would be, the sure. best way would be of relaying that message, to getting that message across to the American people?
1: Sure. Well, part of it is what you're doing now. Um, I think podcasts like these, which are. You know, a a sort of uh, new way of getting messaging out to the masses is a really important vehicle. But beyond that, I think that if we don't win this battle in the court of public opinion, we don't get to the finish line. What we end up getting is a new version of our criminal justice system um, that is still built on punishment and punitiveness. So I think that as advocates, we have a responsibility to ask ourselves, are we just preaching to the choir every day? Are we just talking to each other? Are we only engaging progressive, liberal left folks? Like, Or are we uh, uh, taking the message outside of the normal silos where we have our discussions? Last year I had a chance to do a uh, panel discussion with me and John Legend and a couple of formerly incarcerated folks on stage. And, you know, as much as people ask, well, oh, what does John Legend have to do with this? I mean, first of all, he does have a direct connection as someone who had a mother who was addicted to drugs and also went to jail, but okay. also John, John Legend has an audience that I need to get to, right? I need yeah, audiences absolutely. outside of people who already care to pay attention to these issues. And so I think that that is the challenge and that is the opportunity for, you know, for organizations like mine to make sure that when we look up at who we're talking to in an audience, I mean, you need to preach to the choir to keep them singing, but at the same time you need to expand the size of the choir and so it's our responsibility to look out onto audiences and ask ourselves whether we're bringing new people into the fold.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I want to ask, too, man, um, I, 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 in my preparation for this interview, I did a little research on you, man. I've got tremendous respect for what you're doing and how you're doing it. And as I'm talking to you, I can hear the passion and the dedication in your voice. Um,
1: personally, why do you do what you do? Personally, why yeah. do you do what you do? Yeah, that's a good question. So. You know, I did six joints, you know, not as much as some people. Some people have done 25, 30 years, and I have a lot of respect for people who can emerge from that system with their sanity intact after doing that sort of time. But I remember my last day in prison when I was walking out, and I remember it was the first day that I was emotional after six years, and I was crying on my way out, and I asked myself, like, why are you crying? Like, today's your day. Today's the day you get to leave, except... The day when you leave prison is the loneliest day because you're leaving behind all these amazing people that you've made friends with over the years, and it's the one day in prison where you actually feel like you're alone on your way to that administrative building, and I kept remembering all the amazing experiences I had with these guys in prison. You know, in America, we say prison is where we send bad people who've done bad things, and I would ask them, where do we send good people who've done bad things? because I met good people who've done bad things while I was in prison. And so I reminded myself on the way out never to forget that moment, never to forget the people I left behind, never to forget how much those men shaped me into the man that I am today. And then on top of that, I have a child. His name is Joshua. And when I launched Just Leadership USA three years ago, he was three years old, and he has a one in three chance of going to prison himself in America um, based on the rate that we lock up black men in this country. And so half by 2030, he's going to be 18 in 2030. And so part of it is to create a campaign that saves America from itself um, with all this incarceration. But part of it is that I wake up every morning with a sense of urgency because there's a child that is vulnerable to this system who I love, um, you know, my son Joshua. So,
0: So those are a couple
1: of the personal reasons why I do this work.
0: Do you do you remember um, when you were in prison? And, and I ask you this because I had this moment as well, um, and I, I don't know if your moment happened in prison or when you got or, or before you went to prison. I, I'm not sure. But do you remember when you were in prison, man? When that light went off, when that switch went off, where, where you became
1: aware
0: of your responsibility to yourself and to your family, to your community, and to your to your future, to your legacy? Did, did, did that yeah. moment happen for you in prison? And so, do you remember it? Do you recall it? Could you share it with me?
1: Sure. I had two moments. Um, One was a correction counselor saying to me, um, out of nowhere, a month after a district attorney, a prosecutor in front of a judge, told the judge that I was never going to amount to anything and I was always going to be a criminal and that I was worthless, a correction uh, counselor said to me, you should go to college. And that was a moment that I had never experienced before, and and I ended up earning a two-year liberal arts degree And we all know that Pell Grants have been taken away from people and colleges in prison have been decimated as a result. But I did have a chance to go to college and I learned Russian literature and I learned Upper English Lit and sociology and religion. And and I just learned about other people. So first of all, it was the person saying to me, you should go to college, like that moment that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. And then the second thing was actually sitting in class. Yeah.
0: And why did that mean something to you when he – by mentioning you should go to car, what did that mean to you.
1: Man, at a time when I was at the lowest in my life where all I could think about is how am I going to survive for the next six joints and actually how am I going to get out and go back to being a better stick-up kid than I was before right, I went to prison. Right. And here's this this human being, this adult, this accomplished person uh, this person in a position of authority who could have just continued to beat me down the way the rest of the system was trying to beat me down, but instead took a moment to see something in me that I hadn't seen in myself. I mean, he planted a seed that day that grew into a tree that cast shade that he won't even enjoy, but it was important to him to say something positive to me in that moment, even if I didn't see it in myself. And so um, – that's what made it important to me was like yeah, it was yeah. just the moment that was totally unexpected and that didn't have to happen. And the truth is if I rode the city trains with that guy today I wouldn't even know who he was, but that's part of the beauty of the opportunity I think is that he wasn't being selfish about it.
0: Right, right,
1: right, right. Absolutely. And then no, and then the no. other the other experience was sitting in class and learning about political systems and learning about policy and learning about all the things that happen that affect people like me without people like me at the table. And it was an eye-opener. You know, when you live in a poor community, when you live in uh, communities where you have little to no power, other than
0: properly placed attorney calls may be monitored and recorded. Please continue, Glenn.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, when you live in poor communities, you spend time trying to grasp power wherever you can find it. And, you know, much of my young life, even carrying a gun around and so on, like I tell people, when you take a gun and you put it in your waist, part of it is about saying to the rest of the world, I exist. In a country where black men are continually marginalized and devalued. You know, the more you're devalued, the more people look like you have no value. And so I grew up believing that I had little power and little value and did what I said to try to gain power. Right. And then to sit in these college classes and realize that there's a system at play that, from the beginning, knew where I was going to end up. Like, that felt extremely um, disempowering to know that me ending up in prison was a foregone conclusion probably decades earlier like you have one is, minute
0: left. It, it's, especially knowing, especially knowing that it could have been prevented. Especially knowing exactly. that it could have been directed. Because yeah, exactly. and if it could have been directed for you. It could have been directed for millions and millions and millions of other people as well. Unfortunately, right. Glenn, uh, our time is running out man. I want to thank you. For, I want to thank you for for coming on and taking the time. And I also want to thank you for sharing some real personal, intimate pieces of your of your story and your history with me, uh, with me my man. I appreciate it a lot.
1: Well, it's been great. Keep up the good work, bro. Will do, will do. You have a good day. Um, This is um, this is Dante
0: signing off with the Incarcerated US Podcast, the place where all of our voices come together. The caller has hung up.